You're listening to the Conversation Speaking With podcast. I'm Danielle Cucci. I've found 2017 a really disturbing year. That's writer, thinker, and social researcher Hugh McKay. McKay spoke with The Conversation's fact-check editor Lucinda Beeman at the Sydney launch of The Conversation 2017 yearbook, 50 standout articles from Australia's top thinkers in December. They touched on issues ranging from the rise of Trump and what it means for Australian politics to social dislocation and distrust in our institutions and in each other. This is the live recording of that discussion at Glee Books. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. It's fantastic to see so many people here tonight. We're absolutely thrilled. Um, And it's always a great time of year to get together and reflect on the year uh, that was. Hugh and I were just um, talking about this earlier, about uh, a few of the things we've been witnessing this year in Australia and around the world. Um, Things like the increasing polarisation in politics, uh, increasing tensions, uh, looking at inequality, wealth inequality, but also social inequality around the world. growing distrust um, in the establishment, in political parties, in some cases in the entire political system, um, and in the media. It's not to mention, tragically, an increase in um, extremism and and fundamentalism and and that kind of violent uh, form of protest against the way things are. Hugh, what are you seeing? How are you seeing that manifest? Uh, Well, first of all, that's a lovely summary of what's, (laughs) what's been happening. Uh, and I'd like to start in America, where else? Uh, because the, the themes you've mentioned are all uh, perhaps most starkly observable in America. Uh, and I thought it was conceivable we could have a conversation for an hour without mentioning Trump, but I don't think we can. Uh, I, I think the, the lessons for Australia from uh, the, the phenomenon of Donald Trump and what's happening in America are very serious lessons. Uh, There there are two things in particular I think we should pay close attention to. Um, And they both have to do with why Trump was elected. Now, we know that America is the land of free enterprise, free market. It's the land of the brand. And what is Donald Trump? A brand. Uh, Now, it was a bit like, not quite like, but a bit like electing Coca-Cola as president of the US. Uh, Once the Trump, and the Trump brand of course had been being developed for years, everyone knew who Donald Trump was, and say Trump, and people have a, a kind of image which is the sort of thing brand strategists dream of achieving, well he'd achieved it. Uh, So, so there was a sense that in a, in a country like America, someone who developed um, a brand that somehow captured what Americans like about America, even if it had nothing to do with how they feel about what Trump himself as a person or a candidate was doing or saying, uh, he, 
as we saw in, in, the, in the debates leading up uh, to the presidential election, he was head and shoulders above all the other Republican uh, contenders because he was the dominant brand. Now, the lesson for Australia in that, we don't have a Donald Trump at the moment, luckily, but the lesson for Australia is if you let politics go further and further in the direction of consumer mass marketing and the promotion of brands, you'll end up with a Donald Trump. And that's the direction we have been heading. Um, curiously, I think it started in 1972, <laughs> but it's been a, a trend-gathering momentum ever since that, that famous Whitlam uh, campaign in 19, the It's Time campaign where we had songs and banners and all sorts of things never seen before in Australian politics. Uh, the whole process I think reached its nadir in 2007 uh, where the slogan was Kevin 07, say no more, no, no content, just Kevin 07 but everyone had t-shirts and uh, that, that became a real brand. Uh, the feature of politics when it becomes brand marketing is that it becomes sloganistic and the strategists all talk about staying on message, brand Turnbull, brand Shorten, all that sort of stuff and that's exactly what we're seeing. That is how they talk. Um, and if you ask Tony Abbott uh, uh, what happened when Rudd lost that election and Abbott won. He'll say, stop the boats. And uh, three or four other slogans, but essentially stop the boats. Uh, and then we had Malcolm Turnbull later saying jobs and growth, which you notice is phonetically identical. Oh and O, oh, jobs and growth, stop the boats. Uh, no accident. Uh, very clever bit of sloganeering, an echo of something that uh, was absolutely embedded in the psyche. I think it's a really dangerous, it's got nothing to do with democracy. It's got nothing to do with policy, it's got nothing to do with political discourse, and yet we are falling for it and we are enjoying the razzmatazz of elections. The, the end point, of course, is that you end up in a two-party system such as ours has been, although that's fragmenting too, as you've suggested, um, but the end point is that that the voters think that the major players are brands and that the major parties are brands and they once they start thinking like that, the whole process has been trivialised. Brands don't matter that much in life. I mean, Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola are different but not very different. Holdens and Fords are different but not very different, etc. Don't tell owners of those cars that I said that because they think they're highly significantly different. Uh, but once consumers uh, become voters and the mindset doesn't change, I think we're in all sorts of trouble. The other, the other lesson from Trump, of course, is the lesson of, uh, and it wasn't just about being a brand, it was about a huge block of disenchanted, disadvantaged, uh, stranded Americans who felt as though they were going backwards economically and no one was listening to them. They were on the wrong end of the inequality 
which is far more serious in the US than it is here. But again, as with the, the marketing story, what's happening to Australian society is that we are edging in that same direction of more inequality, a, a growing number of people who feel as though the political narrative such as it is has got nothing to do with them. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the many fragment, I mean fragmentation in a way is the theme of 2017, that's one of the many fragmentations. Um, while you've been talking, I've just been thinking about um, one of your um, previous books, uh, which I'm not sure if any of you have read, or I'm sure most of you have, that's why you're here. Um, it's called What Makes Us Tick, uh, and in it, Hugh reflects on 10 um, desires that humans have, um, and these 10 desires really drive a lot of our uh, behaviour. So reflecting uh, on what you were talking about there, I started thinking about um, two of the desires in particular that you identified. One being um, the desire to be taken seriously, mm. um, which I'd like you to expand on. And the other one was uh, the desire for something to believe in. So in mm. terms of a brand and sales, you know, mm. um, we want to believe that what we're being sold is going to make our lives better. Mm. So how do those two factors? Well, I think you've picked out the, the two that are most obviously relevant to, to all of this. Um, the desire to be taken, I think the desire to be taken seriously, if you had to say what is the absolutely fundamental human motivation, apart from questions of bodily survival, you know, food, shelter, etc., um, reproduction, but so in terms of social desires, the, 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 the deepest of all is the desire to be taken seriously. That's, that's people saying, I want to be heard, I want to be noticed, I want to be acknowledged, I want, I want, I want someone to listen to me and appear to n notice that I'm here. Um, that's really fundamental and it explains almost every aspect of human behaviour has that component in it as part of the explanation. So when that desire is frustrated, we are at our worst. If you feel as if you're not being taken seriously, then the frustration uh, that can boil over into anger, uh, violence, that results from feeling that I'm not being taken seriously, is a really potent, dangerous force in human affairs. I mean, and that, and that arises even in simple ways where if, 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 I'm, if I'm talking to you and I'm fairly sure you're not listening to me, uh, that you're looking over my shoulder in the hope of citing someone more interesting to talk to, uh, the message that you're sending me is, without ever having to say a word, I don't take you seriously enough to bother listening to. When parents don't listen to their kids, they're saying to their kids, we don't take you seriously enough to bother listening. And when kids don't listen to their parents, they're saying the same thing. So wrap that up onto the full societal stage and especially the political stage. And here again, we've got the big contributor uh, to the Trump election. So many people feeling that they had not been taken seriously. And here was a man who sounded as though, and said, he, he took... The, the, the forgotten people, the disadvantaged, the marginalised. I mean, there's a terrible irony in all this, of course, um, but that was what he was saying. And if you feel as though you've been ignored and someone 
suddenly sounds as though they get. I mean, Hitler did the same thing. You know, Hitler, uh, Hitler became a focal point for all that enormous discontent and frustration and rage in Germany between the two world wars. And I'm not suggesting Trump is a Hitler at all, but the same psychological phenomenon is at work. Here's someone who speaks for us. Here's someone who's saying what we are thinking and no one else has been saying it. Just as a marginal note, by contrast, Hillary Clinton, to the, to the vast swathe of people who were hearing for the first time from Trump, someone who seemed to be responding to them, Hillary Clinton was the opposite. She sounded like someone who had never heard them at all, didn't even know they existed, and referred to at least some of them as the deplorables. There's a quote that I wrote down from your book because I enjoyed it so much that I would like to read um, of this um, desire to be taken seriously. Not being taken seriously feels like the ultimate insult and insults tend to fester and seethe waiting for a chance to counterattack. Mm. And I think mm. that really sums up a lot of what's happening mm. um, politically, mm. internationally and Internationally, absolutely. Um, um, but America, again, is a warning to us because the same kind of thing is happening here. Why are we seeing the splintering uh, of the political vote? Why uh, does one nation, for example, attract such a huge number of votes, particularly in Queensland but elsewhere? Um, the rise of Nick Xenophon, Bob Catter, the Greens, uh, people who are saying the major parties have, have ignored me. I don't feel as though they're listening to me. I'm waiting to hear from someone who seems to be taking me seriously. There's a lot of crazy talk about populism at the moment. I think we'd better be very careful what we say about populism because we're talking about populism as though it's a movement of maddies Populism is really the uprising of people who feel as though they have been ignored for too long. Uh, so it, Brexit was another example. Well, all these people who've never taken us seriously, haven't listened to us for the last 30 years, if they're telling us to stay, we'll go. Uh, so it's not thought through, it's not deeply rational, but it's deeply human. Rational and human don't tend to go uh, no, together. No, that's right. Another little footnote. If we think of human beings as essentially non-rational, we can make sense of a lot of human behaviour. If you fall for the trap of thinking humans are basically rational creatures, you'll never get it. The, the, other, the other desire you mentioned, Lysandra, I'm sorry I didn't respond to, is the desire for something to believe in. And that, of course, is very deep within us. I mean, it's sometimes expressed as religious faith, Sometimes it's often expressed as an overinvestment in a leader. Uh, look at Malcolm Turnbull, the, the and and Kevin Rudd in 07. Uh, Turnbull's place in Australian political history is assured, the most disappointing prime minister <laughs> ever, because the expectations were so high that have we finally got someone we can believe in across the spectrum? Labor voters saying for the first time, I think I'll vote Liberal. Uh, and this crashing um, because you know faith in faith in ourselves or in individual leaders especially is always misplaced 
uh, our faith needs to be placed in something greater than ourselves. And that can be an idea, it can be a political movement. Uh, one of the reasons why um, marginalised um, Muslim youth in Australia might contemplate or might have contemplated uh, herring off to Iraq or Syria was something to believe in. And the desire to belong, which was another desire uh, uh, that yeah, you absolutely. identified. Yes. Um, moving a little bit away from politics, more towards you know um, the rest of society, what are you seeing in Australia? What have you um, observed in Australian society in 2017? Mm. How healthy are we as a nation this uh, year? I've found 2017 a really disturbing year. Um, not, not that something happened suddenly, but that we're now seeing many long-term trends coming to fruition. And of course, we've had the census uh, figures coming out this year that have really crystallised a number of very important things we need to recognise about Australia. I suppose um, we, we, we were suggesting fragmentation was a theme. I think fragmentation is the thing I'm most worried about in Australia, uh, social fragmentation. Um, dislocation of families on a large scale, between 35 and 40 percent of contemporary marriages are, are breaking apart. Uh, and I'm not in favour of them staying together. I'm just observing uh, that when you get this rate of relationship breakdown, the proportion is even higher for people who are cohabiting but haven't married. Uh, there are huge social consequences of that level of personal disruption, that, that many relationships breaking apart. Our, a long, it's, it's a 100-year trend that our households have been shrinking, but the census has told us now how far we've got. We've reached the point where every fourth household is a single-person household. The fastest-growing households in Australia are single-person households. And by 2030, which is not all that far away, it'll probably be one household in three uh, that'll be a single-person household. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone who lives alone is lonely or feels socially isolated, let alone socially excluded, but it does mean that as our households get small, the average Australian household is now 2.3, I think, or 2.5 persons per household, but but the ABS is uh, observing a trend that will lead us to the average by 2030, the average will be 2.2. Um, so uh, that, that doesn't automatically entail loneliness, but we now do have an epidemic of loneliness. A very eminent American psychologist at the American uh, Psychological they don't call it the Society Association in America, their recent annual conference, she said that loneliness now represents a greater public health challenge than obesity. Uh, and I think we've got, to, we've got to notice that because that's us too, not just America, another parallel. Um, what does social isolation, social fragmentation do to us? Well, as I say, not everyone who lives alone, there are plenty of people who live alone who love it and will say, I live alone, it's a symbol of my freedom and independence and I'm very happy to socialise then to get behind my front door, shut it, breathe a sigh of relief and go back to being the hermit I really am. Uh, but 
the natural human uh, way of living is in herds. And we've always lived in domestic herds. We're no longer living in domestic. You can't have a herd of two. Uh, even three is pushing it. Typical human herd, six or seven or eight people. That used to, 100 years ago, that was the Australian, average Australian household, typically three generations under one roof. Uh, we compensate for the loss of the, the herd f by eating out more. Um, you know, the, the food court, the public trough, uh, the coffee shop. Uh, we go to these places where we can graze with the herd to compensate for the fact that we're not living in a herd. We make up other herds, workplace herds and so on. But the consequences of such large-scale social fragmentation I think are very serious for us. And you mentioned our health as a society. Here, here are some facts about our health. I love facts. I thought you did, yeah. By the way, as a fact checker, you might be interested to know that I've actually written 18 books, not 15. He said 15. And my most recent book was not Beyond Belief, but Selling the Dream, which bit. is a novel, a much ignored novel. <laughs> Came out this year. Uh, but yes, the, the facts, uh, contemporary facts about our health. Two million Australians this year have been suffering from an anxiety disorder. Now that's mostly, apart from the people suffering that, that's mostly invisible. If I said to you, we have two million lepers, we'd be saying, wow, you know, this is a major, major health concern. Two million Australians with a serious health problem that's not just people feeling a bit worried, but an anxiety disorder uh, that is very closely linked. I mean, if you, if you had to say, what are the two apart from our shrinking households, which is relevant to all this, what are the two seminal facts about contemporary Australia? One is that we have an epidemic of, an epidemic of anxiety and associated mental illness. Uh, on top of the two million anxiety sufferers, a million Australians this year have been suffering from depression. Uh, that's one fact. Second fact, we are more socially fragmented than ever, but I think they're really just one fact. I think if we are more socially fragmented, we create a societal context for heightened anxiety, feelings of social isolation, which can often lead to feelings of social exclusion, very unhealthy for us. The, the nastiest, the darkest shadow across us, which has again emerged in this year's statistics, are that between 65 and 70,000 Australians attempt suicide every year. That's, that's the population of a city like Albury every year. Uh, that, that's, that's unsustainable. I mean, that's a, that's a sign. Uh, we can talk about what we can do about this, but that is a sign of too many people feeling unsupported, too many people feeling as though they're not embraced by us, too many people feeling as though, why bother? And, and because we are, by nature, social beings, when we're not living like social beings, that's unhealthy for us. Where are we going so wrong? I mean, when you say people aren't you know, feeling supported, they're not feeling connected, I believe the mm. need to connect mm. was another it's one another of one the another one desires. of the 10 yep. basic desires. I love these, yes. I love that yes. one. Uh, yeah. But, you know, are, are we looking for connection and not finding it? Are mm. we not looking? Oh, we're looking. Uh, and this is a slightly controversial 
point to make, but that's all right. Uh, we're looking in the wrong place um, because we're looking online. So there's this massive migration of people from functioning local neighborhoods where we, we operate like a community. Uh, doesn't mean we all love each other, uh, but we know each other and we function, we look out for each other. That's what neighbors do. We've moved dramatically away from that. In Sydney, it's now an urban cliche in Sydney is we don't know our neighbors. I, I hope that doesn't apply to anyone in the room, but I'll bet it does. I bet there are some people who say, yeah, well, actually, I see them, but I don't know them. Someone who lived in a terrace house not far from here said to me recently, it's the weirdest thing. You know, I sleep with my head on the pillow uh, against a wall, and I know just on the other side of that wall, someone else is sleeping with their head on their pillow, and I don't know them. I have no idea who they are. Um, but we've, we've formed online communities. We've got Facebook friends, in quotes. Um, it's a nasty thing that Facebook, deliberate, uh, nasty thing that Facebook did calling contacts friends. Because now you have kids saying, I've got 500 Facebook friends. Well, they're not friends, of course. Um, now, I'm absolutely 100% a devoted user of information technology. Couldn't live without the internet, emails, text, or all that sort of stuff, though I'm not on Facebook, um, because I've read the research. Uh, the more time you spend with a screen, even though it seems to be bringing you together, it seems to be about the desire, and it is about the desire to connect, but the more time you spend with a screen, it's a big message for our kids and grandkids, at the expense of time interacting with other people, the more likely it is that you will experience loneliness, anxiety, and depression. Now that sounds, that's a real paradox because surely you say, well, it's all about connection. It's all about exchanging messages. And you know, we're tweeting and texting and Facebook posting and everything. We're right in there. Uh, and yet, what this technology is actually doing is making it easier than ever for us to stay apart from each other. So the big, the big mistake I think we're made, I think it's a short-term mistake. We always go overboard about new stuff. We went overboard about television. I mean, people used to make appointments with their neighbors to come in and watch their favorite programs because not many people had sets in the early years. So then we all went mad about television. That's what you did, you watched television. Now, it's like a fridge. People just leave it running and take out of it what they want. Um, uh, young people can't imagine that it was ever revolutionary. Well, this stuff is revolutionary, and we've got a, a generation of younger people, broadly under 30s, who are, um, we call them digital natives, uh, who are absolutely conditioned by the experience of uh, feeling, uh, uh, of, of a blurred distinction between interaction online and person-to-person, face-to-face human interaction. When, when you and I are talking to each other, we, of course, are exchanging words, but we're also uh, transmitting a whole very complica a complicated set of other messages, tone of voice, rate of speech, posture, gestures, facial expression, the ambience in which we're 
having this conversation. And all of these things are potent. I mean, communication psychologists will tell you somewhere between 50% and 90%, that's a big range, but there's very wide-ranging research, somewhere between 50 and 90% of the meaning that people take out of a conversation is nonverbal. In other words, the words contribute somewhere between 10 and 50% to the meaning that, that we are sharing when we talk to each other. Now, go online and almost all the messages that are really rich, nuanced, subtle and potent in person-to-person -person conversation are gone. It's now impulses on it. May, may, emoticons, emojis may turn you on. Uh, we can post pictures, but none of that is in the same league as when people interact. So our big mistake has been to forget our biological destiny as social beings and think that, and be seduced by the idea that information is everything and if we just keep exchanging information, that, that'll do for relationships. We talk about online communities and chat rooms, all this stuff. It's all terrific. It's great for maintaining relationships with people you know, but a hopeless substitute if you're relying on that. Um, you know, there's a new book just out called The iGen, um, an American psychologist who works with uh, adolescents is saying that the smartphone, the, the, the advent of the smartphone as a mass phenomenon among adolescents from that moment, from that year, you can track uh, dramatic changes, more loneliness, less dating, less party going, less inclination to drive cars. The only good thing I could read on her list was lower rates of teen pregnancy. I saw that. It was really interesting. Mm. Mm. Um, there was a, a very senior Facebook, former Facebook executive came out this month and said he was racked with guilt about the work he'd done at Facebook because he felt that um, what they were doing was tearing apart the fabric of society, essentially. So yeah. it was very damning. I think uh, uh, John Lanchester wrote a really good essay in the London Review, Review of Books about Facebook just a few weeks ago. And he said, the way to think about Facebook is it's a surveillance organization. <laughs> and that's actually what it is. I mean, it's gathering information about us to sell to advertisers who can become more and more targeted in, in their messages. And by the way, that's another, just another, <laughs> sorry, it's just a triggered another thought. Um, when you said, where are we going wrong? We're going wrong, I think, also in our sort of, lies acceptance of surveillance. I mean, we look at reality, I, th I think reality television, uh, which every, everyone, everyone has their own favorite, whether it's Gogglebox or Undressed or whatever your favorite might be. The Killing Season <laughs> on the ABC by Kevin Rudd. <laughs> yes, um, but reality TV is softening us up for surveillance. It's making it seem as though it's fun to just sort of be an ordinary person in front of a camera. You stand on Wynyard Station and watch the row of cameras rotating on the wall opposite the, opposite the station. We, I, I don't think we fully grasped that, uh, that, that surveillance is much, much more of a contemporary issue than, uh, than we thought it would be.
That's terrifying mm. and true. Mm. Um, Hugh, you have spent a lot of time obviously reflecting on these issues over decades and this year again. Mm. What can we do to improve things next year? How can we decrease the sense of loneliness and isolation, mm. the anxiety? Mm. Uh, I think it's... Uh, we, don't, we don't have to be Prime Minister. We don't have to be in government. We don't have to be the Lord Mayor of Sydney uh, to produce changes that could transform uh, our way of life and our mental health. Um, all we have to do is say, uh, what kind of creatures are we? We humans. Are we so different from most other species on the planet? Answer, no. We're very like most species on the planet in our deep need of each other, in our deep need to feel connected, to feel as though we belong to herds and tribes, neighbourhoods, groups, communities, etc. So if we know that we ourselves are not fulfilling our biological destiny and not engaging, particularly with the local neighbourhood. I think the local neighbourhood is a really special thing. Um, of course, we all... I heard Bernard Salt recently saying, uh, neighbours, my, my community is at work. I'm not remotely interested in my neighbours. I'm, I'm going to ring him up about that. Uh, neighbours aren't our best friends, necessarily. Some people become best friends with their neighbours. But neighbours are a very special category uh, in the human family. And the category is people who share the same space and therefore are responsible communally for the health of their local community. We, we are, as, as social beings, we need communities to sustain us, nurture us, support us, protect us. But communities, just because people are living in the same place doesn't mean the community's working. We really have to engage. So the first thing I would say is, let's recognise that this strange collection of people that I live with in my apartment block or in my street are my neighbours. And the, the health of the neighbourhood is the best indicator of the health of the nation. The health of the nation starts with the health of neighbourhood. We're all friendly with our friends. You know, we all know how to be nice to people we like. The great thing about neighbourhoods is they're full of people we may like or dislike, very different from us, very different beliefs, very different child-rearing practices, very different tastes in music, all sorts of things, but they're our neighbours. And it's very good for our moral development to have to learn how to rub along with people you didn't choose. You probably didn't interview all the people in your street before you bought or rented the house you live in. Very few people do that. It's quite an eccentric thing to do. We just buy the house or rent the house or the apartment and then suddenly I think there's an unwritten contract. I think when you move in you have imposed upon yourself a moral obligation to engage with whatever that community turns out to be because in a crisis you're going to need each other and because you are a community, you are a neighbourhood, that's where the problems of loneliness and isolation happen. If you know that someone in your street or in your apartment block is living alone and you don't see much of them, 
make sure you've made contact. Just go and knock on the door and say, good day, I'm here. You know, I don't want to bother you, but I'm here. I live two doors up. If you need anything, give us a call. Or come in for, we're having a few neighbours in on Christmas Eve. Come and join us. Um, I mean, it's a good time of year to be saying, what can we do? Because it's the season when it doesn't seem deeply weird to organise a street party uh, or to invite the neighbours in. Uh, and, and because the season has got some of that feeling of we ought to be more loving, we ought to be more compassionate, you can get away with it. In Sydney, this is freaky, but you can get away with smiling at strangers <laughs> because it's Christmas. You can say hello to someone you pass in the street. You can t I, I have this fantasy about a Martian who visits planet Earth at my request. And I say, I want to show you around Earth. I want to show you what we're like, we, particularly we humans. We're social beings, you know? We live in communities, we need each other, we, we, we have to interact, we have to support each other. Let me show you. So we go to a bus stop and people are all standing, well, they're standing there ignoring each other. Well, we get into a lift and we're all looking to see where the five will follow four, uh, <laughs> ignoring the other people who are in this tiny little confined space. The lift has to break down before we're going to talk to each other and say, gee, I wonder what happened. Who's going to ring up? Um, it, it, it's, it's a very weird thing about us, that, that though we are social beings who need each other, uh, it, it, population density is a factor, of course. The more dense the population becomes, the less comfortable we are. Medium density works best. The strung out quarter acre block uh, has had its day as a, as a housing model. We don't live like that anymore. And that's very socially isolating. Uh, and high density uh, towers are very social. You put people, pack them in too tightly and they start putting three locks on their doors and avoiding eye contact in the car park and all that. But put people into reasonably medium density. The terrace uh, house suburb is the, is the classic textbook example of how it is most likely to work for healthy communal living where we won't ignore each other because we're seeing each other all the time. But so, mu so much of the social change that's been happening, including the things we've mentioned and some others, work against maintaining the local neighbourhood. But that's, that's where I'd start. I'd start with my street. And, you know, as you've mentioned, it's, it starts in the street, but it could spread out um, into the rest of the world. And obviously, mm. if, you know, if we're knocking on people's doors, checking on them, that's going to be very helpful for them. What's it going to do for us if people are motivated by self-interest, which many people are? Mm. I know you've talked about the pursuit of happiness being not, not a good pursuit in yes. itself. Yes, the crazy what pursuit. About the pursuit of meaning in life? Well... Uh, an excellent goal. Uh, let us pursue a sense of meaning. How will we get a sense of meaning? Where does the sense of meaningfulness come from in people's lives? And there's no, it, it's not a secret. Um, the ancients, philosophers and ancient wisdom has been telling us for some thousands of years, possibly 5,000 years, uh, but very contemporary research has been telling us the same thing that people get their sense of meaning not from within and not from pursuing their own needs but from responding to the needs of other people. The, the life for others 
sounds in the contemporary Western setting, it sounds like a sort of dreamy, idealistic thing to say, a life lived for others. Um, but that's, that's the truth of it. Um, and, and because we're social beings, that's actually what's natural for us. I mean, we have this mad myth that humans are essentially self-interested creatures, look out for number one, protect your own interests, get your own way. We're, we're all by nature ruthlessly competitive. And when we do something altruistic, something kind, compassionate, thoughtful for someone else, we're really just doing that to make ourselves feel better about ourselves or so other people will praise us. This is complete nonsense. This is an absolute denial of the most fundamental, sweetest, noblest truth about the human species, which is that we are social, that we actually do need each other. You don't, you don't find any sense of meaning. You don't find who you are by looking in the mirror or gazing at your navel. You find who you are by looking into the faces of the people that you live amongst, the people you love, the people who will put up with you. Uh, that, that's who you are. Uh, you, you are your you're defined by your context. If you lived in absolute isolation, the question of your identity or the meaning of your life would never arise. These are social questions. So yeah, pursuing, pursuing happier. By the way, I am not, as someone recently accused me of being, I'm not an anti-happiness crusader. Uh, I love being happy, but it's a, it's a state. Luckily, most of us are only happy in short, fleeting bursts. Because if we were, I mean, look at people who are seriously happy all the time. Um, you can find them. Uh, people who've recently fallen in love are in that, in that category. And, and many psychiatrists and, and, and psychologists would say of them uh, that they're, they're almost completely dysfunctional. Uh, <laughs> when you're in that euphoric state, you know, that's when you lose things and bump into people and, and make appalling misjudgments about each other, uh, of course, based on this euphoric, uh, seeing everything through the, the rosy haze. Uh, luckily, it only lasts for about two years. Uh, and then we settle, we either split or we settle into something that's deeper and more enduring and has more to do with affinity and companionship than, than, than that sense that we're entitled to be happy all the time. So I, I think we've got to, in, in ourselves and in our kids, we've got to discourage the idea that, that the default position for humans is to be happy. The default position for humans is to be helpful. Uh, and yeah, that brings happiness sometimes, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes seeing someone in trouble needing to help with their shopping or help to cross the road or something is a pain in the neck. You know, I'm in a hurry. I haven't got time for this, but I'm a human. You know, this is one of my, we share our common humanity, and we express that by doing things that don't necessarily make us happy, but do. And parents, uh, Harvard, <laughs> a Harvard researcher, uh, a couple of years ago published some fascinating research suggesting that parents are at their happiest when they are not with their children, um, <laughs> when they're off at the movies or playing golf or something. But for parents, the richest sense of meaning in their lives comes from being a parent. These two things are almost unconnected.
And that, that kind of non-romantic, um, you know, selfless love can be found anywhere, not just in parenting, but, you know, as you're saying, in communities yeah. and, and friendships yeah. and with our neighbours. I think the magic word is compassion. Um, you know, if you say we should love our neighbours or love our enemies or love our political opponents, it sounds mad because we think of love as an emotional state. But, but compassion or loving kindness is an, an old-fashioned word has got nothing to do with emotion. We, we don't show compassion only towards people we like. Uh, it's got nothing to do with affection. It's got to do with need. Compassion is how humans at their best respond to people who need some kind of support. Thank you. Would anyone like to ask a question of Hugh? I'm not sure we can get away from the um, fact that we're living in smaller places in isolation because given a huge range of factors. But if I think about what people in high density housing have access to, their kids have access to playgrounds and their kids go in together and they socialise and they come together. But there's nothing sort of free and available like that for adults. And if I look at that landscape, what kind of things could we do with our landscape so that people can come to better in a social way? Because we just need access to people. We don't actually all have to live, you know, in, yeah. in big tribes. Yes, that's true. Uh, I, st I still do, I mean, I, I agree with you, the horse is bolted and this is how it is and we've got all this high density living, but it is a mistake. I think we need to recognize at some point, this is a, we made a huge error. We shouldn't have done that. That's not what humans, uh, that's not how we live best, so could we stop doing that and do something else in the future? But as we're stuck with it, yes, I think urban designers, urban design, good urban designers are <laughs> among my small handful of heroes. Primary school teachers are on that list as well. Um, but, but urban designers uh, are heroic in, when they're good because they are designing the spaces where even if we've got too much density, we've got plenty of opportunities for street life, for interaction, places where people can comfortably walk and talk. The thing that defines a village or a community or a neighbourhood is that we don't have to make appointments to talk to people, that we have incidental encounters. And good urban design forces us to have... It. I mean, the local coffee shop does that for a lot of people. And, you know, hallelujah, the local coffee shop is now an urban phenomenon in, in Australia. Fantastic. It was a long time coming. I think it only happened because our household shrank to the point where eventually we realised... We, we did actually need human company when we were ingesting. Um, but uh, but, but you, can, you can do it. Uh, you can create th those spaces even among uh, blocks of apartments. Lots of parkland, lots of uh, commercial activity, particularly retail, eating stuff that will bring people together. The dog walking park. I mean, as the birth rate, the birth rate is the lowest in our history. Well, it's not quite the lowest in our history. It was a bit lower a few years ago when the baby bonus was being paid. Uh, that did what Peter Costello promised it would do. It got the it, it edge. I mean, it was, it was nothing to pop champagne corks about. The, the birth rate staggered up from 1.7 babies per woman to 1.8 babies per woman. Replacement is 2.1, so it was still a pathetic birth rate, if you like high birth rates. Uh, it's now gone down again. Um, and so... Uh, the substitute. People just are having kids in smaller numbers than ever in our history. Uh, smallest generation of children relative to total population ever. 
we're learning to compensate. One, one compensation, of course, a bit, two, two brilliant graphs about contemporary Australia. Uh, the graph that shows the declining birth rate and the graph that shows the rapidly accelerating rate of pet ownership. So, um, so the dog walking park is where a lot of people do, uh, ad adults do interact because their dogs are playing with each other rather than their kids. It's, it's a problem because, uh, because dogs especially are being, even cats, but dogs especially are child substitutes, so they're being given human names. Uh, I mean, I recently met a dog called Ian, uh, which, <laughs> and it struck me as a really strange name for a dog. And I mentioned that in a at a function in Melbourne last week, and after the function, a bloke came up with his smartphone to show me a picture of his dog called Neville, <laughs> uh, which is equally weird. But anyway, so you've, so you've got to learn two names. It's not Fido and Smudge. Ian, now is, is that Ian or is that Ian, the bloke holding the lead? I can't remember who's who. Uh, but but so, the, so even in urban settings, the, the creation of the dog park uh, is a good thing. We have a dog named Hugh. <laughs> Is that true? No. No. <laughs> uh, two questions. One is that for uh, community connections and community activities, I agree, they're enriching, terribly enriching. But for some, they're just a step away from communism and evil. Um, I'd like you to speak to that. And the second thing is that life for those of us born between 1950 and 1965, the baby boomers, the rate of change is dramatic. Have you got any suggestions for those of us who are struggling with already being 50 and close to claiming the pension? Yes, right. Um, we're in the presence of a fact checker. The birth dates for the baby boomers are 1946 to 1961. <laughs> so 15 years back. Uh, yeah, um, the, the idea that, 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 that nurturing the neighbourhood, engaging with communities, joining a book club, going to the local coffee shop and chatting to people, uh, participating in a community garden or a community choir or just going to the dog park, even if you haven't got a dog, just because there's a few people there you could talk to, or joining a men's shed or whatever people do. The idea that that is just a step away from communism <laughs> or some sort of totalitarian manipulation of the population, so bizarre. Uh, I, I, but I understand there are people that we are living in a really weird moment in the evolution of Western culture in which individualism and materialism are both rampant. And so we are being sold and our kids are in danger of being sold, the idea that the main thing to know about us is that we are individuals. The most important thing about me is my personal identity. And this is rubbish. This contradicts all of human history, but it's a, it's a contemporary obsession with the individual, which makes us more competitive, more ruthless. Did I just go off the air? Am I all right? Back, back on, uh, and and uh, it's absolutely counterproductive for the health of a society, let alone the health of a street. So I th I really do think we've got to resist that. Uh, now back to the boomers. Yes, the boomers, uh, the most studied generation on the planet, 
although the millennials are in danger of being equally uh, intensely examined. But the boomers, um, uh, the boomers have done remarkably well because uh, nothing that they expected came true. Now, the boomers born in that extraordinary period of post-war economic uh, development explosion, uh, housing construction, industrial development, economic development, all, all of that, as well as the population uh, exploding, uh, led them to think that they were on an upward escalator that would carry them into endless prosperity, material comfort, because that's what the, her, their environment was saying. At the same time, of course, they were the children of the Cold War. And so they were it was a really bizarre, un, un, unprecedented in human, well, certainly in recorded human history, and nothing since like this. While they were feeling they would go on this ever upwards escalator, they were also living with the prospect of the nuclear holocaust. Uh, mutually assured destruction, uh, you know, be all, all be over. So they adopted as their generational ethos, we're not here for a long time, we're here for a good time. Uh, so they became very assertive, very self-indulgent, um, but uh, it turns out they were wrong on both counts. They are here for a long time. The oldest of them have just turned 70 um, uh, last year. Um, and they're not having a particularly good time because the escalator turned out not to go forever upwards. They turned out to be the most retrenched generation of Australians since the Great Depression. And as you've suggested in your question, I'm sorry these answers are far too long. Uh, I'll quickly bring this to the point. Uh, uh, things happened to them they, they could never anticipate. They, 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 they were swept up in an absolute maelstrom of social, cultural, economic and technological change. Now that's been much easier for the generations following them who've grown into all that stuff, but the, the boomers who I think have done brilliantly at coping with all this, they were genuine social pioneers. They genuinely reshaped many aspects of our society and they paid a very high price. In terms of mental illness, a highly depressed generation, a the most divorced generation in our history, although their children are likely to break the record. Um, but you know, th they've had a very uh, rough time compared with the prospect in the beginning that it was going to be all plain sailing as long as they weren't wiped out. So uh, I thought that was fantastic. I agree with so much that you said you write about communities, people being together. But there's one thing you said that puzzled me. So we, I'm like all happy families, we're okay. We used to watch television together. My son would go, go on the internet, Facebook together. We do things, we, surveil, we have surveillance through Find My Friends. But my daughter, it's suddenly, she's discovered something new and she doesn't talk to us as much. She's preoccupied. She started reading books. Oh. Now, oh she's reading all the time. <laughs> and books don't have 
body language, they don't have human connections, they're isolated. Yeah. I can't talk to her, she's reading. Mm -hmm. Now you've written 18 books, it's unforgivable. You're probably yes. gonna read more. <laughs> and yet, what I'm saying is I don't think it's all that bad. Books are also dehumanizing and isolating. Oh, yeah. But you can yeah. get around that. Yeah. And I hope we can find ways to yeah. use other technologies. Well. Yes, when you say you don't think it's all that bad, uh, there's a round of applause for books. Uh, I, I, I hope I haven't created the impression that I think it's all awful. I think it's all threatening. And what I'm, I mean, if, what I'm encouraging us to, to do is to look at all this that's happening and say, this doesn't have to make us into zombies. It doesn't have to make us socially isolated. It doesn't have to double the, the incidence of anxiety in the community, but the signs are disturbing. So why don't we respond to those signs? But you make a really interesting point. Of course, the rot set in as far as individualism is concerned with the invention of the printing press. Uh, mass literacy is a very isolating phenomenon. And by the way, you can see perhaps just over the horizon a time when we will no longer have mass literacy as we've understood it um, because we'll be much more uh, attuned to the idea of using audiovisual media for all sorts of um, um, message transfer. Uh, but yeah, books, I mean, I, I remember my own childhood, I was like your daughter. I remember being oblivious to what was going on in the family because I was buried in a book and my mother would, you know, go out and, and I'd, then I'd find the house was empty. She'd eventually come back and I'd say, where did you go? Well, I told you I was going, but you were reading a book. Uh, yeah, so yeah, let's, let's not think that somehow the print era um, was the golden age and now this is all, I mean, this is all exciting stuff. Um, but just to echo Lucinda's point, I, I think we've got to look at all the stuff, look at what's happening elsewhere, look at the changes in Australian society and say, how can we be sure that these things don't master us? How can we be sure that we still uh, can function as neighbours and communities and get our level of mental health up a bit? I would say as a, a consumer of books, avid consumer of books and social media, that there is um, so much more empathy to be found in books than social media, you know, like going through someone else's life mm. through a book. Um, you know, I think it does bring you so much. It mm. does connect you with other people. And of course, the phenomenon of the book club, which is very recent, <laughs> is a very good sign. People who yeah. want to share their experience of reading. Having said that, my mother's here and I know I ignored her for about 10 years uh, because I had my nose in a book. So sorry, Mum. Um, Hugh, thank you so much for sharing all of your um, you. wisdom and insights with us. Um, a lot of uh, what Hugh discussed tonight is in the yearbook in a piece um, that we were thrilled to publish on The Conversation. So thank you for being part of that. Um, thank you to all of you for coming tonight. Um, on behalf of all of my colleagues, everyone at The Conversation, we want to say thank you so much for supporting quality journalism and thank you for being um, interested in fantastic um, ideas and analysis, uh, you know, such as um, Hughes shared with us tonight. And I hope that we can all take away one or two small ideas about things that we can do in our neighbourhoods, you know, whether it's smiling at someone unprovoked or <laughs> knocking on a door um, and checking in with someone and then hopefully 
if we meet here again this time next year, we are meeting in a world that's, uh, you know, less lonely, much kinder, more compassionate. Mm. That would mm. be great. Mm. Thank you. <laughs>